Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Good morning. How are you? Groovy. I knew who said that. I don't get a lot of groovy out here much anymore, but I know when I hear it, David is not far from it. Not far from it. Um, if you have never participated in Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Ministry, uh, I want to encourage you to take a run at it this year. Um, it really is a very, very beautiful uh, ministry opportunity, and I've never been the recipient of a shoebox, um, nor do I need to be. I, I know somebody told me, well, I'm going to get you a shoebox. No, you don't need to give me a shoebox. Um, but I have been present uh, when uh, a distribution took place in Ecuador. And it was a beautiful event to get to, to be a part of and to see what, you know, what we do over here impacting uh, different corners of the world. And so I, I just really cannot say enough good uh, about that ministry and, and what it does to open the door to the gospel being presented because every time a shoebox is given, the gospel is presented. And, uh, so it's just a powerful thing. We're going to collect up until the, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We'll have kind of a Thanksgiving celebration service that day and commission those boxes and pray over them as well as celebrating some other things that the Lord is doing. And I uh, hope you have some things to celebrate in your life that God is doing, even if it's through a difficult season. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, you know that we left off uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at a sermon uh, on the mount. And the last verse that we looked at, that we read last week, uh, Jesus said these words. He said, for I tell you, unless, this is in Matthew 5, 5:20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you weren't here last week, you may be saying, Joe, slow your roll, hold on, back the bus up. We need to talk about this. But wh what Jesus is saying here is that unless your, your righteousness goes beyond religion in the negative sense of the word, if you will, that list of do's and don'ts, the just addressing surface level behavior, and if it's no more than that, um, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, now, please, please hear me say this. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus, you know, is not concerned about our behavior. He, he's very concerned about our behavior, but he knows that they flow from something deeper. And that unless we get at the deeper, at the heart, and we've, we're transformed by the love of God, and we're transformed to people who love God and, and others, there's no way that you and I are going to experience life in the kingdom of God as Jesus has opened the door to it. And then what happens after verse 20, all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 5, is Jesus kind of lays out you want to think of them as case studies, six case studies on kind of this new kind of righteousness, what, what, this, what life in the kingdom of God being lived out can look like. And it's at a much deeper level. And I need to forewarn you that as we go through these case studies, here's what Jesus is going to do. In the modern vernacular, he's going to get all up in your grill. Okay? That, that, that's what he's going to do. It's, it's going to be real life. It's going to be nitty-gritty. It'll be, uh, you'll feel vulnerable um, probably at times. It'll be gut-wrenching at times. 
uh, and we're going to walk through this really all the way up until our, our Thanksgiving celebration service in, in November, and it's just going to be real. So we might as well just go ahead and dive into it today, and Jesus is going to uh, see what he says about the relationship in you and in me between our anger and, and murder. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading uh, in verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21, here's the words of our Lord Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone, everyone now, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, uh, before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the guard and you be put in prison. Remember, we talked about this phrase. Jesus says next, truly I say to you, pay attention, Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of our Lord. Now, Jesus is talking about this relationship uh, with, with anger. And it's not so much about that, you know, that, that flare-up, um, He's talking about something deeper, a, a resentment. Uh, and he goes on to say that if you carry this level of anger and aim it at your brother, you're guilty of murder. Now, the Apostle Paul said something that was really interesting, and it always kind of captured my heart and mind. Uh, he wrote to, uh, first, to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, it was a letter that he wrote to Timothy, his young protege in ministry. And he said, Christ Jesus, this is in Timothy, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What Paul is saying here is, uh, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, I hope that makes you stop and, like it did me and ask the question, how? How could Paul, you know, kind of honestly make that statement you know there were some pretty nasty people alive in Paul's day I mean people literally who were responsible for the death of thousands and thousands of people and Paul says I'm I'm chief over them you know was it just preacher talk you know was he just trying to exaggerate to make his point well no absolutely not Paul was Paul was spot on in what he says and it flows out of his understanding of what Jesus is really wanting to teach us today and it's this we have to absolutely I mean this is critical to our journey we have to understand the biblical doctrine of sin biblical doctrine of sin can y'all see what I'm holding you know what it is an acorn an acorn what's inside of this acorn a squirrel <laughs> uh, squirrel food yeah 
squirrel food. Absolutely. Um, you know what's inside of this acorn? A giant oak tree. There's a giant oak tree right in here. There's something powerful that comes out, out of this, you know, little tiny acorn. And Jesus is trying to help us understand that where there is a seed, a tiny seed of resentment level anger, there exists the seed of murder. There exists the seed of mass murder. And it comes from this, this, little, this little place that has to get fertilized and, and watered and nurtured and germinated by a proper environment. And so when Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, what, he, what he's pointing to is I know, Paul is saying, I know that everything that makes a murderer a murderer is inside of me. And an understanding, a biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin means you know that it's inside of you too. It, 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 it is there. It just, it didn't have a chance to get fertilized and, 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 and germinate like that other person had happened in their lives. And so Paul is saying the difference between me and, and him is not about quantity, it's about, about quality. And that's what Jesus is saying here. So this is the big idea that I want you to be captured by today. Uh, from Jesus. Murder is not about quantity. It's about quality. It's about this qualitative work that's going on in our hearts. See, the Christian understanding of sin, we cannot escape from this reality. And it really makes us different from any other philosophy or worldview or, or religion. We, we can't escape this, this reality that we are no different in the eyes of God, without Christ, we're no different than the worst criminal on the planet. And that actually should impact the way we approach everybody. We should see them as, you know, somebody just like me. There's a reason that, that saying uh, is just so often spoken that the ground is level at the foot of the cross is because it is. It, it, it is true. My pastor, who's here today, Pastor Kurt, um, who's going to be speaking here on October 30th. It'll be a great message. I, I encourage you. I don't even know what it is yet, but um, I don't know that he knows what it is yet. But uh, um, I, I want to encourage you to be here for that. It's going to be, be a great day, I, I'm sure. But one of the things he used to tell us uh, often as well is that none of us have done all that's inside us to do. None of us have, have done all that uh, is, in, is inside of us to do. And we need to be captured by that. That's what Paul was saying when he's saying, I'm, I'm chief among sinners. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21 and following, we need to be captured by that reality that Jesus is talking to me about me. This is not somebody else. So let's dive in, go verse by verse through this. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now this is, this is you know, Jesus has this kind of, formula here that you're going to see show up several times. And what Jesus is saying is, he, he said, you know, we talked about the law and the prophets before. You've, you've heard that said. You've heard that talked about and taught on. But I say to you, you've heard it said of old, but I, that you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, that's the first part. The second part is, and, and that first part comes right out of the, the Bible. It comes out of Exodus. It comes out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Um, it's the sixth of the Ten Commandments that simply says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And then Jesus goes on with that, that second half, and he says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then that's also kind of scoped out in the rest of the law and the prophets, what, what the penalty for that kind of uh, activity and action is. It's referring to other commands and, and the laws of things like manslaughter and other kinds of things like this. Now, at the surface level, that looks like a pretty straightforward commandment. Don't murder people. And you ought to be able to say, got it. Got it. That's that simple. I, I, I get it. So let's say you're somebody, let's say you're somebody like me who has had seasons of deep struggle with anger issues. And you hear that. You could say, Jesus got it. Yeah, I've, I've got that. No problemo. Uh, I'll make sure I don't murder anybody this week. Check. And, and think that somehow, you know, that's good. See, that's, that's the problem with the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's just surface level that allows me to, to check, you know, off the box and, and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm not OJ. I'm not Alex Murdoch. And I can watch those guys on the news and say, that ain't me. You know, no, no, no problemo, Jesus. I got this. Until we get to what Jesus says next. He said, now you've heard this of old, do not murder. But then he says, but I say to you. Verse 21 said, you've heard it said. Verse 22 he says, but I say to you. And then Jesus takes the commands in the Old Testament and the kind of what I will call the popular teachings of that day, and he addresses them and says, here's the real meaning. Here's what God has intended from the beginning of time and here's, here's what it means in all its fullness. Now, remember, we talked last week about Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish any of the law and the prophet, but he came to fill it full. This is what Jesus is doing now. He's fulfilling. He's filling uh, the teaching of the Old Testament full, and he's going to give these kind of six little mini teachings on, on the Old Testament. So he goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that this anger, well, let's talk about anger for a second. What is anger? Well, there, there's some anger that's just this kind of spontaneous emotion that erupts out of us when what we want done doesn't get done. Or what we don't want to have happen happens, you know. Somebody stops, you know, what we want to, to have happen. You know, there, there's anger that comes from our ego getting wounded, you know. And um, somebody says something and we think, how dare they say that to me? Do they not know who I am? You know, kind of thing, you know. Uh, there's anger of the narcissist who thinks, you know, everything in the universe should center around them. And then one day they find out it doesn't. Uh, there's, there's the anger over injustice, you know, the, this anger that, you know, causes us to long to be the voice for people who have no voice. There's anger over oppression. There's anger over evil in the world. There's, there's all kinds of different anger. There, there's anger that's the, um, that's the byproduct of a, a trigger from 
an emotional pain, a, a trauma maybe from childhood that gets triggered uh, from, from a memory. And, you know, it, of itself, anger is not sin. There are times when actually anger is the best healthy response of a mature follower of Jesus when we're responding to evil. Jesus himself, on multiple occasions, got angry, never about himself. Always uh, his anger was about somebody else. I love the way that John Stott, the theologian and pastor, defined Jesus' anger. He said this, that Jesus' anger was steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. I wish I could think like that, you know? Just, just, just incredible. That, that's, that's Jesus. That's when you see Jesus being angry, that is what is going on. But here's the difficulty for us. Even healthy anger for us can sometimes be a little bit like playing with fire because there is a fine line between anger and sin. And that's why God's word tells us be angry, but don't give in to sin because it's so easy to do out of our anger. Now, that kind of anger really is not what Jesus is is focusing his teaching on here. He's focusing his teaching on a kind of anger that is always sin. And I'm afraid that sometimes we, we kind of misread this and think that Jesus is saying, never, ever, ever, ever get angry. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not, you know, he's not promoting a, a, a lifestyle of nothing but niceness. He, he's, he's not doing that. And so when we look carefully at, at the text, One of the things that we're going to notice pretty quickly is Jesus never, in this teaching, ever gives us a command not to be angry. He doesn't say, don't be angry. He's just pointing out the reality of where this kind of anger leads, and that everyone who's angry has this kind of resentment-level anger for his brother will be liable to judgment. He doesn't say, don't get angry. And the reason is because Jesus knows that's impossible. He gave you, you know, the, the, the emotion of anger, and so it's going to happen. So what is Jesus actually saying here when he says, everyone who is angry? Well, two things that I just want to point out real quickly about kind of the language of the New Testament in that day. There are two, two Greek words for anger. One is phumos, and that's that quick temper kind of thing. You know, somebody cuts you off on Dorchester Road, you know, and it, you blow up and, you know, it dissipates. And five or ten minutes later, you kind of moved on past it. Now, if you're still stuck there and it's two weeks ago, we have a counseling center that I'd like commend to you, Okay. Um, because that, that, that kind of anger needs to dissipate. The kind of anger when, you're, you know, when your 10-year-old spills their grape juice on your white sofa after you've told them multiple times, keep it in the kitchen. You know, you blow up, it dissipates, you clean it up, and, and, and you move on. So that's the first kind of uh, anger in, in kind of spoken of in the New Testament. The second kind is from another word for anger. It's orgizo. And orgizo is that kind of anger where you brood where you just kind of seethe over it. It's where you're playing that replay button over and over and over again, and you just get stuck there. So much so, you go back to it so often that you can't unstick yourself. Now, both types of anger can, can be damaging. They both can cause, you know, cause, cause problems. Um, but this remaining anger, this abiding anger, this kind of what we might call nursing a grudge, 
kind of anger is not just painful at times, it is toxic. And so when Jesus is dealing with anger here, he's talking about this kind of anger, this kind of nursed anger, this kind of uh, anger where you stay there and you just keep feeding that monster. And then you start aiming that anger at a brother or sister, someone in your community, someone in, in your relational world. And when this happens, the Bible says that you will be subjected to a kind of judgment. And Jesus puts it in the context of the same kind of judgment as a murderer. <laughs> Does anybody else other than me go, what? You know, G Jesus, what? what? And, and here's what Jesus is, is showing us. Here's what we have got to get kind of captured in our minds here, and, and it's this. Jesus is showing us where the heart of murder lives in my heart. He's showing us where the heart of murder lives in my heart. But Jesus wasn't done yet. Look at the last part of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, the, the King James Version here actually names the insult. It, it uses the word raka. Uh, that's the actual word that's used there. It was a word that was used in Aramaic, which was Jesus' kind of tongue of birth, his language of birth. And it was a four-letter word. It was an expletive in, in his culture. It was something that just wasn't spoken, you know, in, 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 in good company. It was kind of a street insult. And you know, it's not something, have any of you ever had anybody call you Raka? You know, I, don't, I mean, you may have behind my back. None of you have called me Raka to my face that I'm aware of. Um, it's not something that, that we use today. But the, like our, our English standard version doesn't even translate the word Raka here. It's talking about a, an insult. And it says this level of insult will make you liable to the council. And the council here is the Sanhedrin, which in Jesus' day was the, was the Jewish Supreme Court. I mean, that's basically what, what it's saying. And so Jesus is saying, if you, if you insult somebody at this level, you will be liable to the, the Supreme Court. Now you're saying, come on, Joe, calling somebody a name, like, you know, it needs to be, it's a Supreme Court issue now? Well, you know, it's kind of like, what, what is Jesus is saying? But Jesus isn't done there yet. Jesus goes on to say, uh, and this gets even more intense, and whoever says you fool, and the word for fool here is translated from the Greek word moros, from which we get what word in English? Moron. We get the Greek word moron. Now, sometimes our only thought about that word moron is this is somebody who's unintelligent, but uh, in, in the language uh, that the Scripture was written in, that word um, that gets translated as fool uh, in, in our English uh, was not just about somebody who was unintelligent, but it was also about somebody who was immoral. So it was kind of a combination word for that. And so we see it showing up in Scripture. Let me, let me read a couple of passages to you out of the wisdom literature because it talks about people who the Bible says are fools. Um, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Same word there. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. A fool is quick-tempered. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent. So there are people that the Bible says existing in our world today 
who are fools, who are moros, who are both unintelligent and, and immoral. But here's what Jesus is saying. When you call somebody that, when, when you label somebody that, what you have done is you have upped the ante. And you've moved from what we might think of as just this little insult to now you have, you have cast a judgment on the whole person, their, their character, who, who they are at the core. And you've moved from just kind of shaming their behavior to shaming their being. And this is what you've done. You have murdered them in the eyes of somebody else. You have murdered, you've assaulted their character in the eyes of somebody else. Now, remember the land in which Jesus taught. Not just the nation of Israel, but the larger areas called the Middle East. And most of us know that the Middle Eastern culture is a culture uh, where uh, something thrives there, and that's uh, this honor and shame culture that, that just kind of thrives there. And here's the problem I think sometimes we think about that culture and, and, and we don't realize it's here. Because, friends, it's here. Um, I think social media has had much to do with that. I think sometimes maybe even kind of our celebrity culture has a little bit to do with that. I know the political rhetoric that we've been living through for, you know, really the last decade has a lot to do with that. But we've moved into this kind of honor-shaming culture. And so Jesus is talking about when you're trying to shame somebody, this whole person, Jesus says, you're raising the stakes. And so he says, whoever says you fool, you will now, Jesus is going to raise the stakes on it. He says, here's what you're going to be liable to. Here's what you're going to have come at you. And he says this, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says the stakes are going to get raised in you. Now that phrase, hell of fire, I want to camp here for just a moment because what was heard in Jesus' day when he said those words and what I think we hear in our day may be a little bit different. And I believe that both are equal and right and true, but they're going to be, I think, a a little bit different. The word that's translated here in our English language as hell is the word Gehenna. And that is an actual place in Jerusalem, this this place called Gehenna. So when Jesus said the, the hell of fire, he was saying the Gehenna of fire, which was an actual place outside of the city. It's in the south side of uh, the, the, the holy city of Jerusalem. It was a valley, and it was a valley where uh, there was a time when kind of the worst of the worst of the worst moments when the nation of Israel was rebelling against God took place right there in, in that valley of Gehenna, or in Hebrew, the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And so that, that's kind of the, it's the same place. But when the, you read it translated in our English Bible as hell, that's what it's actually referring to, an actual place. And so in Second Chronicles uh, in chapter 28, uh, uh, King Ahaz uh, comes to power. And the Bible says this about him. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Literally sacrificed through burning fire his, his own children. 
In the book of Jeremiah, the same thing is kind of happening uh, there. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 2, it says, uh, Go out to the valley. He's telling Jeremiah, God is. Go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entrance of the potter's gate and proclaim there the word that I tell you. And this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such a disaster on this place. And he's talking about that valley. That the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me. They have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods. It goes on to say, it has been filled with the blood of innocence. You have built uh, the high places to Baal. And you've burned their sons in fire as a burnt offering to Baal. If you go back to when Josiah uh, becomes king, uh, one of the things that took place in the nation of Israel, revival broke out. And when that did, uh, Josiah took all of those priests to those false gods who had led God's people into that worship where they burned their children alive. And literally, uh, Josiah slew all those prophets and priests there um, and then made a curse over, over that valley of Ben-Hanom, ben this valley of Gehenna. And so when, when Jesus uses that word Gehenna in his statement on the Sermon on the Mount, their minds went to all of that. Now, mostly, I think our minds, we immediately go to this place of eternal separation from God. And I think both of those are right. I think we need to, we need to think of, of both of those things happening. But they would have heard something a little bit different. They would have understood it has to do with eternal judgment as well. But see, they lived in a day, they didn't have waste management systems and recycling. And so that valley literally became the city dump. And so if you lived in Jerusalem or visit Jerusalem, you ended up with trash in your house, you took it to the valley of Gehenna or Ben-Hanom and, and it burned. And in the scripture, you'll hear uh, this description of it as the, the place where uh, the worm lives forever and uh, the fire does not go out. Speaking of eternal separation from God. And this idea, this, this valley became this icon, if you would, this word picture for eternal separation from God. And so it is a both and kind of thing that Jesus, I believe, is teaching here. But Jesus is specifically, I think, speaking more about what's going on in the here and now than he is in the future. And so he comes and says, if your heart gets infected with this level of anger... It is in danger of the hell of fire, that kind of fire that will not get put out. It just won't get put out, and it will impact your life in the here and now. Now, one of the things that I think we've got to be aware of is that there's a reality about people who don't want to follow Jesus in our day, people who have never wanted to follow Jesus, you know, people who have said, I don't want the way of Jesus to be lived. Sometimes we think that, you know, or, or they may even think, um, I'd like that heaven thing, but I don't want the ways of Jesus now. Friends, that heaven thing, the kingdom of heaven, is where what Jesus wants done gets done. It is the rule and reign of Jesus where we live under his vision of what life actually looks like. Not our culture's vision of how 
human life flourishes best, not, not a college professor's vision, not a high school teacher's vision, not your vision, not my vision, it's Jesus' vision. See, that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about, is about, about Jesus' vision for, for life. And so, friends, I want us to be conquered uh, or captured by this because Jesus is speaking of this here. And it's this. Jesus' vision of human flourishing requires something. It requires a relationship, a healthy relationship with God and others. If you want to experience life in the kingdom of heaven as Jesus is spelling it out, we've got to understand that it will require a healthy relationship with God and with others. Now, if you don't want Jesus' vision for life, it's okay. I love the way when Dallas Willard taught on, on hell, uh, he, he, he spoke these words one time. He said, the fundamental reality of hell is separation from God. And that comes about because people do not want to be with him. The only reason that there is a hell is because God makes provision for what people want. And hell is simply the best God can do for some people. I love that definition of hell. It's just simply the best that God can do for some people, giving people what they want. Okay, I've camped in the hell thing long enough, okay? I know some of you are saying, get on. And, and so here we go. See, Jesus is saying that, yeah, there's implications for the future, but there's implications for here and now, right, right now in this life. And if you give yourself over to, to that anger, there's this danger that you're going to get sucked into this hell of, of fire. And again, it may feel like Jesus is giving this incredible warning to something that for us you know, looks like maybe just name-calling. And some of us actually kind of do that name-calling thing on a regular basis. And so we just kind of want to write this off as maybe, maybe trivial. But to God, it's not trivial. To Jesus, it's not trivial. You know, to the, to the first century hearer, and maybe even to the, the 21st century, you know, Charlestonian today, we might kind of read that and think, Jesus, what's that? You know, why, why are you getting so intense over, over a, a little name calling that's going on here? You know, okay, Lord, I'll, 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 try, to, I'll try to do better this week. But, but to God, Jesus is saying, you're in danger of the hell of fire. I mean, this is, this is serious. If you're carrying that kind of anger around, God, God takes it serious. And Jesus is teaching on it here, and the New Testament writers, um, though Jesus didn't give a command in this teaching, the New Testament writers take the teachings of Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they address it head on. Listen to, uh, to this from some of uh, New Testament writings. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the days of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. He's saying, get rid of it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, but now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander. I'm seeing talk from your mouth. Put, put all that away. Jesus' half-brother James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in James 1, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. See, Jesus and those Holy Spirit-inspired writers of the New Testament over and over and over again address this toxic kind of of anger at a very, very deep level. 
And Jesus is not just aiming at the surface. His, his diagnosis here is intense about the human condition when it comes to this kind of anger. And Jesus is saying, look, there's just this vicious vortex of anger that will pull you in if you even get close to the edge of it. It'll just, it'll pull you in. Level one of this kind of anger is kind of just looks simply like, you know, I don't get my way over something. You know, and it just kind of presses the anger button. Somebody blocks my way. And then maybe at level two, it kind of offends my ego. You know, maybe somebody insulted me, you know, in, in the midst of that. And again, that whole response of how, how could they do that? Don't they know who I am? And friends, when you, when you have that thought, you know, how could they do this to me? That, that is a loaded phrase. It really is a loaded phrase because in there you're thinking, well, I don't deserve this kind of behavior. There's this setup about yourself and your ego, and that leads to level kind of three, being sucked into the vortex downward further. And that's this idea that I become this kind of self-righteous victim. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in our day, our culture has perfected that. This, this kind of nation of victims, this victim mindset. And it leads ultimately to a worldview where anyone in authority is now seen as an evil oppressor. And every victim, whether it's true or not, is innocent and righteous. And friends, that's a lie. And it just sucks us down further to where you might get to level four. And this is where things start getting real nasty because now your heart cracks the door open to contempt. And contempt is just a root issue in the human condition. And it will pull you farther down. And, and this comes from that place of, of self-righteousness and, you know, thinking that you're, you're better off than the person that's wronged you, that you're a better person when actually you're probably not. You're just, you know, a different kind of messed up from them. We all are just a different kind of messed up when, we, when it comes down to it. But here's what has to happen. I have to start believing that so I feel good about myself when I start destroying that other person. When I go beyond just pointing out their behavior and start addressing who they are at the core of their being and start to try to cancel them from the community that we're in together, try to drive them away. And friends, that leads to level five, which is when it starts coming out of our body and into the world, slipping out of our mouths. And it normally comes out as just a very subtle form of violence, you know, at first, but it grows. It starts as a snide remark. It, it kind of maybe a little dig. Then it moves its way into a gossip conversation at work or in the neighborhood or at church. And it, it just it begins to, to grow that as it, as it comes out. And then it becomes insults and sarcasm and tweets and posts until if you lose all control, it becomes a Facebook rant. And then it's out there. And that leads to level six. And that's when you start to experiencing the hell on earth of fire. It starts to burn. It starts to burn that person. It starts to burn you. It starts to consume everybody around it. And it begins to destroy your own soul, even a little more. And this is where you drop into level seven. 
And this is where Jesus, see, when you, when you read the rest of Matthew 5, you're going to see everything begins to be downstream. All of the violence, all the objectification of another person through lust, all, all of these things that leads to divorce, d- domestic abuse, that kind of violence, all of this comes in that downward spiral that starts with this seed of, of anger. And Jesus is warning us about getting close to the mouth of that before we get pulled into the next level. He said, don't let that anger get into your heart because it becomes a destructive force that you can't manage. Stay, stay away from that. Uh, uh, avoid that. Don't go down that road. And then Jesus gives us some pathways to, to breaking free. And I love this uh, about Jesus. He, he takes this big, heavy issue, and then he gives us some very, very practical ways to pull out of that vortex's, you know, sucking us in so that we can live in the reality of the kingdom. And so this is, this is Jesus' way out of anger. He, he gives us a way out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible tells us that we never come under a temptation out of which that God does not give us some way of escape. And so here in Matthew chapter 5, um, in, in verses 23 and following, Jesus is going to give us a way of escape out of this, out of this vortex uh, of anger. Look at it with me. Matthew t- chapter 5, verse 23. So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, there's a little touch of humor in there that I want to come back to in a moment. But the first thing that I want to point out is this. Something should happen every time you and I come into the presence of God. Every time we come into the presence of God. Every time we come to, to worship. We, something should take place in our hearts. And here's what it is. Let me give it to you. We should expect conviction when you come to worship and then act on what God reveals about your heart. Every time in the scripture where you see somebody drawing near to God, they're hit with conviction. They're hit with something true about their human condition, the condition of their own soul. And sometimes they they just fall down in the presence of God. Sometimes all they can do is cry, holy, holy, holy. It happened to the disciples. They, They realized who Jesus was and said, we're not worthy to be here with you in this boat, Jesus. Every time we come into the presence of God, there should be this experience of conviction. That's what we see here. This this person went went to worship. They're approaching God. And in that moment, a conviction comes. And we should see that taking place in our lives. Now, here's, here's where there's a little bit of humor to what Jesus says here. Do you remember what part of the nation of Israel this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, was taking place in? It was around what what sea? Sea of Galilee, that's up in the northern part of, of the nation of, of Israel. And so they're, they're, they're up there. And then Jesus says um, to them this, this kind of scenario. If, if you're on your way to Jerusalem and you find yourself in front of the altar, which is there's only one altar in Jerusalem. Now think about this. He's talking to people that are up in Galilee, 
about going down, and they mostly did it annually. They'd go down to the temple, um, and they'd make sacrifice. And Jesus says to them, okay, here's the deal. If you make this journey, and that's about an 80-mile journey or so uh, by foot. And remember, they're going to be taking something with them. They're going to be taking their sacrifice. Um, and, and it's usually an animal. And in that economy, you know, animal was kind of like, you know, currency in our day. And so you take your, your, your goat with you, and we'll just name him Fred. Is anybody in here named Fred? I'll change the name. Okay, Fred the goat. You take your goat with you down to the temple. And you're there, and you're, you're, you're standing in front of the high priest about to give him your goat, and there you remember, oh my goodness, you know, you're a farmer, and you're thinking, ah, uh, my neighbor, farmer, we've got this dispute over water rights to this stream that runs through our property, and I have said some pretty horrible things about that person, and they have said some pretty horrible things about me. What Jesus said you do is you, you say to the high priest, hey, would you hold my goat for a minute? You run the 80 miles back to your farm in Galilee. You make things right with your neighbor. You work it out. And then you run all the way back. And then you sacrifice. Now, that, I mean, that was the scenario that Jesus laid out that, that, that they would have heard in that day. So for Jesus, he was saying, friends, this is a big deal. You've got to be willing to go to extremes to deal with this. This is, this is serious. And you've got to give yourself over to this if you want to have, you know, a relationship that is vibrant. If you want a vibrant relationship with God. And Jesus is, is revealing here a very deep biblical truth that runs throughout all of Scripture. And it's this. Jesus reveals that our fellowship with God is tied to our relationship with others. Our fellowship, how you experience the presence of God in your life and, and its activity in your life, the aliveness of God's presence in your life, is tied to your relationship with other people, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's true or not. So if, if you're here today and, you know, we were worshiping through song earlier and just wasn't doing anything for you. You weren't getting nothing out of it. You were just trying to figure out why these other people got their hands raised and why do they seem so glad about this? Maybe there's some relational inventory you need to do. Maybe there's something going on in your heart with, with this thing called anger. Or, or you try to pray and it feels like your prayers are just hitting a, a concrete you know, ceiling. Nothing, nothing's going on, nothing's happening. You're not feeling the presence of God. Well, there could be a lot of potential reasons, but this is the one that Jesus is pointing to us to today. If you've got this seething, grudge-filled anger going on in your heart, and you're aiming it especially at a brother or sister, you're not going to have full-fledged peace with God in those moments. Your fellowship with Him is going to be interrupted. Let me give you a verse just to show you how, how real this can be and how close in relationship this can be. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter writes these words. Husbands, and I think this could go spouses. This could flow either way. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Friends, you get sideways with a spouse, it will disrupt your fellowship with God. It will disrupt your prayer life. There's no way around it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That in, in your relationships, there's a connection 
to how you're going to relate to God based upon how you relate to each other and, and others around you. Then he goes on in verse 25, and he gives us another scenario. He says, come to term quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. And Jesus is giving us an incredibly important warning here. Jesus, and, and here's the warning. Jesus warns us, don't let anger fester. Deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester Deal with it quickly. Don't let it end up becoming judgment from other people. You deal with it one-on-one with that person. Now, in this hypothetical situation, he says somebody gets in a legal dispute, and it's a dispute where there's going to be some type of you know, decision made by the judge. And Jesus says, while you're on the way to that court, you need to settle things. You, you, need, to get it, you need to get it made right, because if you don't, and you end up owing that person you know, something of a financial gain, uh, you're going to get thrown in the debtor's prison. Now, we don't, we don't have debtor's prisons today. We don't understand really the, the depth of that. But there's a reason that Jesus said, you'll not get out till you pay the last penny. And the reason is, in that day, when you went into debtor's prison, most people died there. You know why? Because they couldn't get out to earn money to pay what they owed to that other person. And that would be the sentence that the judge would give. If you can't pay what you owe this person now, go to debtor's prison. And that was almost a sentence of death. And so lots of people died right there. No one wanted to end up in this kind of prison that they knew Jesus was referring to in this passage in Matthew 5, 25 and 26. And Jesus points out the way to handle this is to deal with it quickly Don't let it settle. Deal with it. Paul, writing about this same concept, tells us this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, don't let the sun ever go down on your anger. Don't don't let it happen. And this is the, the image that Jesus is using here. Reconcile quickly. Now, one of the things that this should remind us of when Jesus is telling to to reconcile on the way, when he talks about this prison, this this debtor's prison, one of the things that our minds need to go to real quickly that we need to recall, we need to recall how God reconciled me to himself, how God reconciled you to himself through Christ Jesus. See, when I become aware you know, that I'm holding something against someone else, maybe maybe it's a debt I think they owe me, a relational debt or something, I, I need to my mind needs to go, and I think the Holy Spirit will take you there if you'll let him, but our mind needs to go to the massive, unpayable debt that we owe to God. You and I, prior to coming to know Jesus, we were in a prison, we were in a debtor's prison. We owed God everything. It was was a debt we were never going to be able to pay off, but God paid that debt through the death of his son on the cross, he, he made that sacrifice for me. He made that sacrifice for you uh, uh, on the cross. God chose to reconcile while we were still indebted to him. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 5. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And then he says this, all of this is from God 
It's not from you. You didn't do anything. All of this work is from God. You're, this, you knew, this new creation that you are in Christ, old gone, new come, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God did all the reconciling work through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message, this message of reconciliation, that we could be reconciled with God and that the world can be reconciled with God and that we can be reconciled with one another, even, even our enemies. And see, God has given us this ministry, but it starts, as Jesus tells us, it starts by being aware of this seed in our heart, how it grows, how it manifests, and how to avoid getting pulled into that, that vortex. And see, Jesus wants us to live out this ministry. Jesus wants us to be a generation of, of, of Christ's followers who are reconcilers, who are helping reconcile this lost world to God. And one of the great tools that Jesus gives us is learning how to reconcile with our brothers and sisters, learning how not to live in captivity to anger in that prison, but be set free from that through the power of God's Word and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The question is, will you commit to that? Will I commit to that? Will, will we commit to do the work of dealing with the places and spaces of anger? Will we, will we do the work of relationship where it's damaged with others? Let's pray. Lord, we come to this moment at the end of having looked at your word. And Father, we, we said earlier that Every time we come into your presence, we need to expect, anticipate that there will be some conviction, some, something you want to open to us about our own hearts, something you want to reveal, oh God, about what's going on in us so that we can experience life in your kingdom more fully in the here and now. And so, Holy Spirit, I just come. I come and ask you right now, would you have unhindered sway in our hearts and minds? Would you remove every obstacle and barrier to us hearing clearly to the words you want to speak to us about us right now? Lord, we, we, we hear of life in your kingdom. We see the beautiful vision that you have of brothers and sisters walking in harmony in, in unbroken relationship. And we long for that, God. But you want to point out right now what's keeping us from that. So Holy Spirit, speak. Speak to our hearts. Show us. And maybe where you're at right now, you just want to recommit yourself to pursuing that healing, that reconciling as the Holy Spirit reveals to you that person that you need to go to, that place of anger that you need to find escape from. And deal with it quickly. Don't wait. 
Don't let it fester any longer. Lord, we come again in this moment knowing that you have a calling not on our lives alone, but as your people, that, that we could be a generation of people, God, who carry that ministry of reconciliation out because we're carrying it out in our own lives and we take it to the ends of the earth to let everyone know that they can be reconciled with you through Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you need to do that. You just need to be reconciled with God through Jesus and all you gotta do is come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust that you are the savior of the world, that you did die on the cross so that I could be reconciled with God. And, and God, I want that. I want my eternity secure, and I want here and now to not be captured in the hell of fire. I want to be free from that. I want to be free to love. And the Bible says if you call on the name of Jesus from a heart that's seeking him that way, you will be saved. And you can do that right there in your seat. Most of us, what we need to experience today is just a a rededication of ourselves to to live out in the kingdom of heaven to live out of the principles that Jesus has given us here so that we could be a generation of reconciliation to bring glory to God our Father and so we come God in this moment recommitting ourselves afresh to that great vision of yours to be that people your people on mission with you it's in your name we pray Amen.